Now let us, as we get ready for the ministry of the word, I invite you please to take your Bibles once more. Let us turn to our sermon text this morning, which can be found in the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 7. Uh, If you're using the Pew Bible, again, that's found on page 273. I do have the text printed on the back of your outline as well, so you can follow along there. But we will be looking at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. But as we get ready to hear God's word read, let us go before him in a time of prayer, asking for his blessing upon our time this morning. Gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. And now as your word is read and proclaimed, we pray, Lord, that we will have open ears and open hearts to receive your word. I pray for myself, Lord, as your servant who has been called to preach your word, that I will do so, Lord, rightly dividing the word of truth, making sure that Christ is exalted and held forth publicly as crucified for our behalf. So, Lord, we pray for your blessing upon our time this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verses 1 through 17. Please give your attention as I continue to read God's word to you this morning. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do, that is all, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. In all the places where I have walked with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously." Since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I have removed from before you. 
And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. So I remember a couple of months ago when Queen Elizabeth passed. I think it's been a couple of months. It's kind of I, I lose track of time. <laughs> I I was talking to my wife just a little bit ago, and it feels like you know we were mentioning the passage of time, and I said it, it feels like it's a loaded grain semi with the brakes cut going down a forty-five degree hill. It just feels like days keep flying past me like you can't believe, but. Anyway, I was some time ago, I was speaking to a friend of mine after the, the death of the queen, and he was like, I don't get all the big deal. What's, what's the big deal about Queen Elizabeth? We're Americans. We don't, we, don't, you know, we don't have a king. We don't have a monarchy. And that's exactly what we fought against. So why do we care what goes on over there? So it, it just made me think of human government. And if you were to ask me what I thought was the best form of government for humankind, I would not say a constitutional republic. I would say a benign monarchy. And, and the problem is we've had so few benign monarchies in the history of humankind that you need something like a democratic republic. Why? Because we're fallen people. Right? We're fallen people. We need government. We need something to curb our sinful tendencies. We need something that will sort of uh, promote justice amongst us and pr promote equity and fairness amongst us. But we've had all kinds of human governments throughout our history, right? I mean, people extol the wonders of democracy, but really, how do you define democracy? Democracy really is like two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner that night. Okay? I mean, that's the, that's the idea. I mean, every form of government has had its flaws. But what we see here in this passage is this idea of a benign monarchy through the house of David. Uh, God here in this passage talks to King David and tells him that he will set up a house for him. He will build a house for David. And it's by that word house, he means a dynasty. That he will be king and kings will come from him and he will establish his throne forever. And as we've been going through the, this, this Advent season, this is the, our final message in the Advent season, and it's talking about the reign of Messiah, because that's what's prophesied in this passage. What's prophesied in this passage through the prophet Nathan to David is that one will come from your loins, one will come from your, your body who will reign forever. And it's, it, while it, you can say it speaks of Solomon, it really is speaking and pointing forward to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of this prophecy. And that's the idea I want to get across this morning, that the reign of Messiah is the fulfillment of the coming of Messiah that we've seen these past few weeks. Now, as I've been doing throughout this series, I'm going to continue doing this morning as well. While we read from 2 Samuel 7, I'm not going to step through it like I normally do when I preach a passage. We're going to be turning to multiple passages, so keep your Bibles handy. Uh, if you've got a new Bible with the pages, 
that are still kind of stuck together because of the gilding on the edges. Make sure you separate those so we can turn rapidly. Uh, we're going to look at several passages this morning. But our first point this morning is the need for a king. The need for a king. As we've seen, uh, we've been tracing this idea of the coming of Messiah. And it's a coming that was promised way back in the beginning. In the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis 3.15, we saw the promise of Messiah as God placed Adam into the garden and promised him life upon obedience and death upon disobedience. We saw that Adam failed. And as a result, Adam was punished. He was exiled from paradise. But in that curse, in that exile, there was a promise, a seed promise, if you will, that will, is growing throughout the entire Old Testament and will, will bloom into a luscious plant, as we will see this morning. And that seed is that one will come, one will come from a woman who will crush the head of the serpent and who will bring salvation to his people. And then we fast forward to the time of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, as we see that this promise of Messiah comes with a blessing to all the nations, as God calls Abraham out of his home in Ur of the Chaldees and says, I want to send you to a land, and when you go there, I'm going to make you a great nation, and you will be a blessing, and through you, all of the families of the world will be blessed, and we know that that blessing comes true because uh, Jesus Christ, our Savior, is born of Abraham. And then last week we saw as the people thrived in the land of Canaan, uh, they were given laws, sacrificial laws, and these laws then pointed forward to the work that Messiah would do in order for God to dwell among his people, which has been the goal of creation. The goal of creation was God to be God to a group of people and they would be his people. He would be their God and they would dwell in unbroken communion forever. But because of Adam's sin, that communion was broken. So thus, uh, the sacrificial system was given to show that in order for communion to be established, for, in order for God to dwell among his people, sacrifice had to be made. Blood had to be shed. And we looked at Leviticus 16 and the uh, Day of Atonement and how that pointed to what Christ does on the cross. But all of this is not complete until we get to the reign of Messiah. The reign of Messiah's king. And we saw already, even in the time of Moses, there is a need for a king. Because once Moses is gone, who's going who's to control, who's going to rule over this group of two million or more people wandering through the wilderness? Who is going to, who is going to take control of these people? So already you can kind of sense, as you read through the Old Testament stories in Moses, What's going to happen after Moses dies? Who's going to take care and charge of the people? Well, it shouldn't surprise you that God has promised and prophesied for a king all the way back in Genesis. In fact, as God is reiterating the covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 6, God, in reestablishing and confirming the covenant with Abraham, tells him, he says, look, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. So even there, God is reaffirming to Abraham the promise that he made back in Genesis 12. He's like, look, you will become a great nation. You will become so great that kings will come from you. 
And in fact, we see a king foretold in Genesis 49. So this is near the end of Genesis. And if you know how the story goes, at the end of Genesis, Joseph is taken to Egypt. He becomes sort of second in command over all of Egypt. And, and as he has done so many favors for the Pharaoh, uh, he brings his family to Egypt. So now Jacob is there. And, and in chapter 49, Jacob, who is now old, and he uh, starts to pronounce blessings on his sons. And in chapter 49, in verse 8, he blesses his son Judah. That's his fourth son. And he says to Judah, You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have grown, gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So this is Jacob's blessing, his patriarchal blessing on his son Judah. And he tells him that kings will come from you. The scepter, that is a sign of royal authority, shall not depart from Judah. And in that promise, we see that God has said that through the line of Judah, the kings of Israel will come. And we know that's to be the case because David was a son of Judah. And Jesus Christ, of course, also descended from Judah. But notice the language there also. If you've been with us through our uh, study in the book of Revelation, Judah is called a lion. And if you remember what Jesus is described as, he, he is described as the lion from the tribe of Judah, the king, the one who will come. So even in the Old Testament, before the time of Moses, we saw that God has foreshadowed that a king would come for his people. And all of this points, of course, to the Davidic kingdom that we see this morning and its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Now, even more so during the time of Moses, as Moses is instructing the people in the wilderness before they go into the land of Canaan, in chapter 17 of the book of Deuteronomy, if you want to turn there, Deuteronomy chapter 17, this is page 172 in the Pew Bible. Now again, we've only seen these promises of a king coming through Abraham and coming through the line of Judah, but we still have not seen a king. This is Moses as the leader of the people, Moses as the great liberator. Moses is the one called by God to bring the people out of Egypt. Here they are, they are getting ready to enter the promised land, and here in the book of Deuteronomy, God gives some instructions concerning the kings that will govern his nation in the future. And here through the prophet Moses, God says in chapter 17, verse 14, When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. 
Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. In verse 18, Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priests and the Levites. So again, even before a king is, is, is over the land, over the people, I should say, God says, look, the king that will be over you, because you're going to desire a king. He's already foreseeing this, and we'll look at this in a moment. They are already going to desire a king, and they're going to want a king like every other nation. And God says, I'm not, that's not the kind of king that will rule over you. You're going to have a king that I set over you, and this king will not be one who multiplies his armies, his horses, and so on. He will not be a king that returns you to Egypt because that's where I took you from. He will be a king who, who follows my law. He will, he will make a copy of the law and he will be one who teaches the law to you. So God here tells Moses what the king should be like. Not like all the other nations, but one who king, keeps the law. Now we know as we follow through the Old Testament, right? Moses goes from the scene and then Joshua, his successor, comes. And what does Joshua do? Well, he leads the people in the, in the conquest of, of the land of Canaan. But then Joshua dies. And then what happens? Well, then you go into the book of Judges. And if you know anything about the book of Judges, I like to call the book of Judges the wild, wild west of the Old Testament. Because everything starts to fall apart. <laughs> it becomes so chaotic in the book of Judges. Because as you see, there's a repeated refrain at the end of the book that says, that there was no king in the land, and the people did whatever was right in their eyes. And that's exactly what you see in the book of Judges. The people, without strong leadership, without a Moses or Joshua to lead them, what happens? The people begin to go into sin. It's only like two generations after the Exodus. And these people start to fall into sin, and they cry out to God, and God sends a deliverer, and then they, he delivers them, and then the people rejoice, and then the pattern repeats. Over and over again. The people sin. God punishes them. God, they cry out. God delivers them. They, they, they see peace for a while. And then they repeat the pattern. The book of Judges just shows you how desperately the people needed a godly king to rule them. And then you get into the book of 1 Samuel. And, first, and Samuel himself is like the last of the judges. And the people then clamor for a king. We want a king. We want a king like all the other nations. So they put Saul, the first king of Israel, over the, over the land, over the people. And he is the people's choice for the king. Why is he the people's choice for the king? Because if you know anything about Saul, Saul was a tall guy. They, the Bible says he stood like a head above everybody else. So he, he looked the part. He was kingly. He was tall. He was handsome. He was strong. He, was, he would be a king like all of the other people, all the other nations. But God warns him in 1 Samuel 8 that this is your choice for king. I'll let it happen, but he's going to be a king. You want a king like all the nations? You're going to get a king like all of the other nations. And you know what happens to Saul, right? Saul falls apart. He, he does what is not right, and eventually the Lord tears the kingdom from him. And in chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, Samuel is lamenting the fact that Saul is such a failure as a king. Samuel's like, what's going to happen here? And the, and the Lord has to sort of like talk him off the cliff, if you will, talk him off the edge. And in 1 Samuel 13, verse 14, 
through the prophet Samuel, he speaks to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. Because you, Saul, have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So even there, early on in Saul's reign, the Lord takes the kingdom from him. He says, I'm going to give it to one who follows after me, one who has my heart. And we know who that is. That is David. That is David. And we see the anointing of David in 1 Samuel 16. And you should know this story pretty well too. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel is sent to go anoint the new king. And he's told to go to Bethlehem. And, and he go, he's told to go to the house of Jesse. And Jesse has seven sons. Now David is the youngest and he's out tending the sheep. So uh, Samuel says, bring forth your sons. Let's see your sons. So this, the first son comes and Samuel's like, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Look at, look at him. He's strong. He's kingly. And God says, I have not chosen that man. And he repeats that down the list until finally all the first six sons of Jesse go through. And Sam is like, do you not have another son? And he's like, yeah, we have another son, but he's out tending the sheep. And Sam is like, did I not say, bring all of your sons before me? And then in verse 7 of chapter 16, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. It's all, all these other sons that, that Jesse has sent forth. Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For the Lord looks, for the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what, that's what set David apart. David was not what you would expect to be a king, but David had God's heart. David was a man after God's own heart. The people need a godly king because without a godly king, you just have, you have a, a dictatorship in a sense. And the people need a godly king and God will provide them a godly king. So that's what we come to now in our second point as we look here now at the promise of a king because once David was anointed, and if you know that story, right, David is anointed the king, but he's, he doesn't take the kingdom right away. Right? It's some time before uh, the kingdom is given over to David. And during that time, uh, Saul begins to sort of persecute David. Why? Because he knows that God has told him that the kingdom is no longer his. And he knows that God has uh, supplanted him with David. So he, he persecutes David. And the rest of 1 Samuel just shows how, how Saul you know, is, is kind of slowly losing his mind and continues to persecute David. And David, again, trying to be a man after God's own heart, will not uh, take his hand and put his hand against the king. He trusts in the Lord. And at the end of... First Samuel, David, or I should say Saul, is killed in battle. And at that point in time, as, as the book of Second Samuel begins, David then is, is sort of elevated to, to lead the tribe of Judah. And then eventually, he becomes king over all Israel. And during that time, all of Israel's enemies have been defeated, including, as you'll see in, in chapter 5 of Second Samuel, uh, there's this group called the Jebusites, and they sort of inhabited the city of Jerusalem. And David takes that over and says, this will be my capital, the city of Jerusalem. This will be where God's house will be. So David, now with the defeat of all of Israel's enemies and the kingdom thriving, the time was ready now to take the ark. If you remember the ark of the covenant, 
right? It's that golden box that was always in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. That's where the priests would go once a year to provide that atonement for the people. The ark was sort of like God's footstool for his throne. And David's like, the ark needs to be here in Jerusalem and we need to build a temple for it. We need to build a house for God. That's how 2 Samuel 7 opens. God, uh, David says, look, the Lord has given me rest from all of my enemies. It is now time to bring the ark into Jerusalem. He wants to build a temple for the Lord. That's what we see in the first few verses of 2 Samuel 7. See, now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And then initially the prophet Nathan says, well, do whatever is in your heart. The Lord is with you. But then the Lord visits Nathan in a dream and says, you need to tell David some other things here. Okay, David is not going to build me a house. David, first of all, he says, look, I never asked for a house to be built. And secondly, David, you're not going to build my house. I'm going to build your house. God promises to build a house for David, a dynasty for David. And it will be David's son who will build the house. Look at verse uh, 13, well, verse 12, where Nathan says to David, when your days are fulfilled, David, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Him, he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the Lord tells uh, David through the prophet Nathan, you want to build a house for me? I'm going to build a house for you. You want to build a temple for me? I'll build a dynasty for you. Your son will build a temple for me. Your son will build a house for my name. And his kingdom will be established forever. Now we know that this was fulfilled, at least in the near term, in, the, in, in King Solomon, who was, who was David's son, who, who uh, ascended to the throne and succeeded David. And, and Solomon's kingdom was great. If you know, you know, you read through the book of 1 Kings, Solomon had a, a wonderful kingdom. The, the, the borders of the kingdom expanded to their, to their largest extent, and, and the riches of Solomon's kingdom were, were lavish, and, and his wisdom and, and his military might were so uh, powerful and so um, feared by all the other nations. This was a, a golden age of Israel's monarchy under King Solomon. Uh, you read the story of the Queen of Sheba coming and marveling at the riches of Jerusalem and the wisdom of Solomon. But we know that Solomon is not the final fulfillment. As good as Solomon's kingdom was, he was guilty of many of the things that you see that God warned the people way back in Deuteronomy 17. God said that the king should not accumulate many wives. How many wives does Solomon have? <laughs> Lots of them, right? You should not accumulate many horses. He had many horses. Solomon was guilty of, because of his many wives. The people were uh, sort of um, torn away and became idolatrous. He himself was idolatrous. He built many um, temples to other foreign gods, the gods of his wives. He was guilty of many things. And his son Rehoboam was a foolish King And under his rule, the kingdom was split in half. And we know how the rest of the story goes. 
Solomon was the high point of the kingdom of Israel. From that point on, the northern kingdom uh, was apostate from the very beginning. You know, the kings of Israel, Ahab being the worst of them. The southern kingdom kind of limped along for many years. You had some high points. You had kings like Asa and Hezekiah and Josiah, all of whom were said to be, you know, they, they walked in the ways of David, their, their father, but they never attained to the heights of Solomon. And then finally, the Davidic king line was apparently broken uh, at the end with this guy, Jeconiah. Jeconiah was the last king when the, when the Babylonians came. And in the book of Jeremiah, we see a kind of a gruesome prophecy about him. In Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 24. Jeremiah, who prophesied to the people as the Babylonian captivity was happening, as the exile was happening in Jeremiah chapter 22, this is a message to, if you got a, it says Coniah, that's Jeconiah. So verse 24, as I live, says the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those whose face you fear, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there they shall not return. Is this man, Coniah, a despised, broken idol? Is he a vessel in which no pleasure, in which is no pleasure? Why are they cast out, he and his descendants, and cast into a land which they do not know? O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not prosper in his days. For none of his descendants shall prosper, sitting on the throne of David and ruling any more in Judah. The kings of Judah had gotten so bad that when Jeconiah was in charge he was exiled and and god says count this man as childless none of his descendants will sit on his throne the line in a sense was cut off with jeconiah and here we learn that even though the people need a king even though the people need a godly king even godly kings can fall short the best of the kings david solomon they fell short you need more than just a godly king So finally, we see now in our third point, the arrival of the king. So the line of the kings ends with Zedekiah, who presided over the fall of Babylon. He was captured. He was taken to Babylon, and his eyes were put out. And then you have nearly 600 years with no king. 600 years with, uh, with, an unbroke, with a broken line. And, and you have no king in the land until 600 years later, you see this messenger, this messenger from, from God, the, the angel Gabriel comes to an obscure village in northern Israel, to an obscure virgin in, in that town, and it makes an announcement to her in Luke chapter 1. We're going to look at this passage more closely next week for Christmas, but in Luke chapter 1, Verse 26. 
see here, the Gospel writer Luke says, now in the sixth month, this is uh, the time references uh, back to verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. So it's six months from then. So in the sixth month from that point in time, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, if you know anything about uh, Galilee, it's sort of like the West Virginia of Israel. Okay? <laughs> it's, it's, it's a backwater area. It's, it's, it, no, it's, it's uncultured. It's uncouth. And Nazareth is, a, is an uncouth town. And he's, he, the, the angel Gabriel appears there to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. Very important there. And the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice! Highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. As is usual, whenever an angel appears to a human being, you see here, when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Common response to an angel, uh, of an, from an angel to a human being. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Now, now, don't miss the importance of that statement from the angel Gabriel to Mary because, as I said, it has been 600 years since there's been a king in the land and it's presumably the, the line of the kings was broken with Jeconiah. Yet here, the angel promises that one will come, one will be born who will be the king, who will assume the king of David, who will take his throne and his kingdom will be forever. This is a fulfillment of what was promised to David back in 2 Samuel chapter Seven, And as we read earlier this morning in Matthew's Gospel, how does that Gospel start off? Well, it starts off with saying the word saying, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of the King. He is the King. Got Matthew's Gospel focuses on Christ as King and shows us in the opening chapters that this Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King, the Son of David. And right off the bat, Jesus is identified as the Son of David. Where Solomon failed as King, where Solomon failed as the Son of David, Jesus will succeed. Because a godly King is not enough. We need a King who is the God-Man, Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2, when the Magi come, they come to Herod and they say, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? And when they see the baby Jesus, what do they do? They fall down and worship him because they know that he is the King. Later on in, the Math, in Gospel, Matthew's Gospel in chapter 3, the herald of the King, John the Baptist, the one who would uh, be the forerunner for Jesus, he begins his ministry by preaching a Gospel that says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is breaking forth, so thus you must repent and prepare yourselves for this kingdom. And it's a message that Jesus himself repeats in Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
But we learn soon enough that the kingdom of heaven is no ordinary kingdom. It is not a political kingdom. It is not an earthly kingdom. Jesus will tell Pilate in John chapter 18, my kingdom is not of this world. It is a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly kingdom. It is a kingdom that is not entered in through a, a, you know, through a passport or becoming a citizen. It is a kingdom we enter in through faith and repentance. It is a kingdom that is not anything like the kingdoms of this world. Jesus in Matthew 13 gives many illustrations of the kingdom. It is going to be a kingdom that starts off small but grows large. It's going to be a kingdom that is governed by the word of God. It's going to be a kingdom that brings in many people into into its fold. Jesus as the son of David and the true king in fulfillment of the promise of Messiah. He came as the head-crushing king in fulfillment of that promise. He is the one who was promised long ago. And he came as the king who would bring blessings to all of the nations of the world. He does this not by lavishing worldly blessings on us. He does this through the blessing of his broken body and his shed blood by bringing people into the kingdom. Jesus blesses the nations by promising them salvation and eternal life through faith in him. The reign of Messiah is seen by the defeating of the power of sin and the kingdom of darkness through his death on the cross. We see the victory of Jesus' kingship so clearly in Colossians chapter 2 where the Apostle Paul there says in verse 13, "...and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh..." He, that is Christ, has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. On the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus achieved the greatest victory because what he did on that, on that work on the cross was to bridge the gap between God and man that was broken at the fall. The king comes to restore the relationships. The king comes to bring peace to all men on earth, right? Peace and glad tidings to all on earth. Why? Because he, he, re, he redeems us. He reconciles us. He bridges the gap between God and man. Jesus is a king who came to die and to rise. And as the son of David was promised to build a house for him, Jesus, we know that Solomon built the temple, but Jesus builds a greater temple, the church. This is John Calvin commenting on 2 Samuel 7, where he says, Solomon built the temple in which God was served and worshipped. However, our Lord Jesus Christ, being the true temple, also built a house for God his Father, especially since he reconciled us to him. For by this means he inhabits us by his Holy Spirit. Christ built the spiritual temple in a manner much more worthy and much more noble than Solomon did. Here is a kind of house that is far more perfect than the building that was on Mount Zion. It's a temple in which so many men and women who have converted to the faith of the gospel are like numerous stones that have been assembled so that God might dwell throughout all the earth. We are the house 
of God built by Jesus Christ, the temple of God. We are the living stones that through faith and repentance are placed into the temple of God that Jesus is building. Now the reign of Messiah is seen as we see now. It is, it is a reign in which he is king in absentia, if you will. He is king sitting at the right hand of God the Father as the church is being built. He rules over his kingdom, the church. But the time is coming when that reign will be consummated, when the king returns in glorious victory at the end of the age. We've seen this in the book of Revelation before. But John sees in Revelation 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And, on, and he has on his robe and on his, on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. When that happens, all of God's purposes for creation will be fulfilled as Messiah restores all that was lost back in Genesis 2. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise of God to build a house for David. As son of David, he will reign forever in the new heavens and the new earth over his people. This is our king. And this is what Christmas means. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious truth that Jesus Christ, the coming King, will come and reign. We, we are so thankful, Lord, that He came a first time to defeat sin and the devil, and now we await His final return, Lord, at the end of the age to right all wrongs and to bring in the consummation of the kingdom, Lord, to wipe every tear from our eyes. Lord, I pray that by faith we enter this kingdom. I pray, Lord, that we recognize that our King has paid for all of our sins. That there's not one sin that we commit that is not covered by the grace of God that is ours in Jesus Christ. So, Lord, as we celebrate Christmas, help us to remember that Christmas is the coming of Messiah, the coming of the King into the world to, to take His kingdom and to reign forever with His people. The godly King kingship of the God-man himself. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.